It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, so this week I've got a little Civil War mystery for you. But first, I want to tell you about some plans that we made for this summer and invite y'all out. Brianne and I have just registered to have a table at the Haunted America Conference on June 24th through 25th in Alton, Illinois, just north of St. Louis. Now, a little bit about that. The website, ghostconference.net, said that this is not some sort of meet and greet with celebrities who sit at tables so you can pay for autographs. This is a speaker-based event with presentations, discussions, questions and answer sessions, hands-on workshops, ghost hunts, tours, and much more. So, yeah, this is a conference for us ghost nerds. And we hope if you've got the weekend free and you want to come on out, just go over to ghostconference.net, get your tickets, come say hi. We would love to see you. That's June 24th and 25th. So with that, let's head over to Charleston, South Carolina, and explore a really interesting and unique part of Civil War history that I'll actually be honest, I hadn't heard about till Brianne told me about it. I hope y'all enjoy it. April 19, 1861, only a week after Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, Charleston's harbor, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a naval blockade against the Confederacy. Known as the Anaconda Plan, 
The strategy was to isolate the southern states and prevent them from importing war materials and exporting goods, shattering their will to continue the fight. The result was devastating. By 1863, federal forces had effectively cut off every major port along the 3,500-mile coastline, and the Confederate Navy, which was practically non-existent at the start of the war, could do little to stop them. So the fledgling Confederate government was forced to improvise by not only offering bounties for the destruction of U.S. naval vessels, but also pushing for the development of new technologies to make up for their fleet's shortcomings, one of which was put on display the night of February 17, 1864, in Charleston, South Carolina. By this time, Charleston had remained a Confederate stronghold, despite Federal forces' best attempts to take the city by force. But the blockade continued as a squadron of 20 U.S. warships including six ironclads, sat in wait. Then, at 8.40 p.m., on an otherwise calm night, an immense explosion came seemingly out of nowhere, taking down the USS Housatonic, one of the U.S. Navy's most heavily armed ships. Yet no cannons had been fired, and the only clue as to what had attacked this massive sloop of war with some of the crew's eyewitness reports of a mysterious, cigar-shaped vessel moving toward her in the water. It turns out that the USS Housatonic had fallen victim to the first successful combat submarine in the history of modern warfare. Yet this new infernal machine, named the H.L. Hunley, did not survive her historic attack on the Housatonic, and as a result, the ship sat hidden in the dark waters of the Charleston Harbor for over a century, her location entirely unknown. And then, when the submarine was finally found, a new mystery emerged from within the rusty old hull. How or why did the Hunley go down? My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On June 10th, 1861, Tennessee's Columbia Herald published an article by Reverend Franklin Smith that called on Southern businessmen to actively pursue the development of submarine warfare in an effort to help defend their shores. Of the submersibles, Smith wrote, quote, the new vessel must be cigar-shaped for speed, made of plate iron, joined without external rivet heads, about 30 feet long, with a central section about four by three feet, driven by a spiral propeller. The article was reprinted in papers across the southern states, leading a man by the name of Horace Lawson Hunley to heed the call and attempt to pioneer this new wartime technology. Hunley was born in Sumter County, Tennessee, in 1823, but he made his professional life in New Orleans, where he studied law. He joined the Louisiana Bar Association in 1849 and eventually purchased a small farm operated by enslaved laborers. In later years, many believe that patriotism encouraged Hunley to go into the submarine business, but the reality is that this wealthy Southerner thought the war was a foolish endeavor and his attempt to build the sub was nothing more than for financial gain. After Hunley received additional financial backing from some friends, he contracted engineer James McClintock in the fall of 1863, and by the winter, a submarine was built according to the specifications laid out by Reverend Smith's article. She was appropriately named Pioneer. The boat was 35 feet long, about four feet high, and almost completely round. She required three men to operate, one to steer, and two to turn the crank that powered the propeller. The Pioneer was launched in March of 1862, and although she was slow, fragile, and prone to leaking, she worked. And as a result, she became the only submarine to receive an official commission in the Confederate Navy. But the CSS Pioneer never saw action. On April 25, 1862, after New Orleans fell to Federal troops, the ship was scuttled in the new Basin Canal in an effort to prevent her from falling into enemy hands. Eventually, the federal troops were able to locate and raise the Pioneer for an examination, and according to a newspaper article from 1868, they then sold her for scrap. Following the incident, Hunley and McClintock fled to Mobile, where it took them another year to build their next submarine, which is sometimes identified as Pioneer 2, but formally, the vessel was named American Diver. 
McClintock was determined to create a better submersible than before, and he focused intensely on how the ship would be powered. Since the manual hand crank was insufficient, McClintock spent months attempting to build an electromagnetically powered engine, but ultimately, the effort failed. Every attempt at an engine was too large to fit in the new sub. So in the end, another hand crank was added. Trials began in January of 1863, but the experiment failed. The diver was still too slow. But in spite of this disappointment, the submarine was put into action the following month in Mobile Bay where it attempted to attack federal ships of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron. Yet the mission was a complete failure. Once untethered, the American diver wasn't powerful enough to fight the choppy water that was caused by the currents at the mouth of the bay and made worse by the bad weather. So the ship took on water and sank. Fortunately, the crew escaped and survived. Hunley and McClintock were now out of a significant amount of cash, especially since they financed these two experiments, both of which sank within a year of each other. Their dream of building a submarine was now seemingly dead in the water. But then, Edward C. Singer, a torpedo expert, arrived in Mobile and saw the value in their venture. So Singer found the funding necessary for the pair to build one final ship. Throughout the spring and summer of 1863, James McClintock and the workers at the Parks and Leon Machinery Shop built the submersible that would be named the H.L. Hunley. This ship was the most advanced of them all, sleeker in design, with a length of 40 feet. James McClintock had reasoned that if the ship had to be powered by hand cranks, then he needed more space to add more hands, and as such, the main compartment where the crew resided was nearly 25 feet in length, which accommodated a total crew of eight men. To the exterior, thin dorsal fins were added to the front of the hatches to reduce drag, and additional small fins were fitted in front of the boat's diving wings to deflect rope and seaweed. And upon its completion, the Hunley was said to look more like a shark than the cigar-shaped submarines of the day. The sub's plumbing was also improved to add to the ease of diving and raising to the surface. Ballast tanks were equipped on both ends of the boat, which could be flooded through valves and then emptied with the use of hand pumps. Additional ballast was added, including iron weights that were bolted to the underside of the hull. That way, in case of emergency, these weights could be removed by unscrewing the bolts from inside the vessel so the ship could rise to the surface more quickly. Of course, space inside was tight. The hull reached only four feet three inches high, and entering and exiting the submarine was a tight affair, as the two watertight hatches, each weighing about 150 pounds, measured only about 16.5 inches wide and were nearly 21 inches long. Notably, these hatches were actually larger than the original plan had called for. 
Once inside the vessel, seven men would sit on a wooden bench to turn the hand crank propeller. A series of gears and a flywheel allowed them to take periods of rest while the ship continued to move forward, and the final man in the crew was left to steer the sub. The first demonstrations of the H.L. Hunley took place in the Mobile River. After passing these initial tests, Confederate officers were invited to see her in action, which took place on July 31st, 1863. The Hunley's target that day was a flat barge anchored in the river, and on cue the sub appeared, towing a floating contact mine at the end of a long rope. The Hunley moved steadily through the water toward the barge, and then descended beneath the surface while continuing its path toward the target. Then, when it made contact, there was a significant explosion and the barge lurched and dipped toward the water before it began to sink. Several minutes later, and 400 yards away, the Hunley surfaced. The test was a success. Following this demonstration, the submarine was officially recommended for service, and on August 12, 1863, she was shipped by rail to Charleston, South Carolina. To ensure that the sub arrived undamaged and unaccosted by federal troops, the ship was surrounded by scaffolding and then covered in a tarp to disguise its shape. Additional armed guards were also on the train. Upon her arrival in Charleston, it's said that James McClintock was promised a payday of a hundred grand, roughly 2.3 million today, if the Hunley was able to sink either the New Ironsides or the Wabash, two of the most fearsome ships in the blockade fleet. But first, the Hunley was to have a test run in the harbor. Confederate Navy Lieutenant John A. Payne, formerly of the CSS Chikora, volunteered to command the ship and the crew was comprised of seven volunteers. Unfortunately, this test run did not go as planned. On August 29, 1863, the crew pulled out into the harbor, but as Lieutenant Payne went to free the tow line so that they could take control of the sub, he got caught up on the lever controlling the diving planes. The Hunley began to dive the hatch was still open. Water flooded in and the men were forced to vie for their life. And only three of the eight-member crew survived, John Payne, Charles H. Hasker, and another whose name has been lost to time. Charles Hasker gave an account of his survival in 1914 in the monthly magazine Confederate veteran. We were lying astern of the steamer Etowa near Fort Johnson in Charleston Harbor. Lieutenant Payne, who had charged, got fouled in the manhole by the hawser, and in trying to clear himself, got his foot on the lever which controlled the fins. He had just previously given the order to go ahead. The boat made a dive while the manholes were still open and filled rapidly. 
Payne got out of the forward hole and two others out the aft hole. Six of us went down with the boat. I had to go over to the bar which was connected to the fins and through the column of water which was rapidly filling the boat. The manhole plate came down on my back, but I had worked my way out until my left leg was caught by the plate, pressing the calf of my leg in two. Held in this manner, I was carried to the bottom in 42 feet of water. When the boat touched the bottom, I felt the pressure relax. Stooping down, I took hold of the manhole plate, drew out my wounded limb, and swam to the surface. Five men were drowned on this occasion. In all, the fishboat drowned about 35 members of its several crews. I was the only man that went to the bottom with the fishboat and came up to tell the tale. By the time Horace Hunley arrived in Charleston in late summer of 1863, his submersible was underwater. Plans were already underway to raise the sub and retrieve the crew for burial, but Horace Hunley was still determined to succeed, believing that the boat was still salvageable. In his opinion, the flaw of the test was in the military crew. While the men were sailors on other Confederate ships, they did not have the knowledge and skill necessary to operate his submarine. So Hunley wanted his boat back because he believed with the right crew, he could do better than the military. In a letter to Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard, he wrote, I am part owner of the torpedo boat, the Hunley. I feel therefore a deep interest in its success. I propose if you will place the boat in my hands to furnish a crew, in whole or in part, from Mobile, who are well acquainted with its management, and make the attempt to destroy a vessel of the enemy, as early as practicable. Beauregard conceded, so when the sub was raised, it was returned to Horace Hunley to oversee. Cleaning was necessary, and quite possibly the most difficult task as the remains of the crew were still inside the boat, so bloated from their time in the water that they could only be removed in pieces. And of course, the longer it took to clean the vessel and rid it of its foul odors, the more soldiers became weary of it, eventually coming to call it the Iron Coffin. Then, on October 15th, 1863, the H.L. Hunley went on yet another test run, this time with Horace Hunley in command of the sub himself. It's said that those who saw the submarine dive beneath the surface knew that something had gone wrong immediately. Normally, when the submarine sank beneath the waves, it went quickly and left behind little evidence on the source that it had ever been there. But this time, when the vessel went down and left behind bubbles on the surface. Witnesses then watched, waiting for the submarine to resurface as planned, but it did not. The H.L. Hunley had sunk 60 feet and gotten stuck in the mud. It seemed that prior to the test, the crew failed to close the ballast tank valves, so when the ship descended into the water, they were flooded bringing the submarine straight down to the harbor's bottom. 
The crew did everything in their power to raise the vessel and survive, but it was to no avail. Trapped in the dark, water gradually leaked into the crew cabin, and all eight men, including Horace Hunley himself, died a gruesome death. Upon its retrieval, General Beauregard ordered the Hunley grounded permanently, reportedly saying, quote, it is more dangerous to those of us who use it than the enemy. Yet it didn't take long for the Confederate general to be convinced otherwise. When Horace Hunley was given command of his submarine for that fatal test run, Lieutenant George Dixon was the one to step aside and relinquish control. Yet in spite of the results, it was Dixon who maintained his conviction that the sub would work. So he convinced Beauregard to give the Hunley yet another chance. Reluctantly, the general allowed the sub back into service, but this time with the stipulation that the vessel could only operate if she stayed on the surface. This meant that the Hunley had to change the way it could attack. Originally, it was meant to approach an enemy ship on the surface while towing a floating explosive and then dive under the ship. By the time the charge hit the enemy vessel, the Hunley would be safely away. This method of attack was successfully demonstrated back in Mobile in July of 1863, but now it was deemed too dangerous, so the boat was fitted with a 20-foot wooden spar topped with a torpedo that the Hunley would ram into the side of an enemy ship. Typically, these torpedoes were designed with a barbed point, so they became jammed in the ship's hull and were detonated by a mechanical trigger attached to a line that activated as the sub backed away. So on the night of February 17th, 1864, the H.L. Hunley, commanded by Lieutenant George Dixon, undertook this mission. It took roughly two hours for the H.L. Hunley to reach its target, the USS Housatonic, a 1,240-ton, wooden-hulled, steam-powered sloop of war. It's said that men on the deck of the ship saw a yellow glow coming toward them in the night, but by the time they realized it was coming from the portals of a submarine, it was too late. None of the ship's 12 cannons could stop a vessel that close to them that quickly, and so the Hunley went headfirst into the ship's mizzenmast, ramming its torpedo into the Housatonic's hull. An explosion rocked the U.S. naval vessel, and within five minutes, it had sunk. Luck was on the side of the crew of the Housatonic, however, as it was low tide, and the ship was in only about 25 feet of water. So after it sank, much of the ship's rigging remained above the surface, allowing most of the men to cling to it 
and await rescue. As a result, only five of the 150-man crew died in the attack. Robert F. Fleming, one of the survivors of the Housatonic, later reported that as he clung to the rigging after the explosion, he saw the submarine off the starboard side of the wreck and that there was a blue light shining on the water. If this is indeed true, the blue light was an agreed-upon signal between the Hunley's crew and the Confederate soldiers on Sullivan's Island, the designated location of return for the ship. Following the attack, success or failure, this light was meant to signal these men to light a fire so that the submarine could find its way home. Of course, they did just that, without any knowledge as to whether or not the mission had been a success. But in spite of this signal, the H.L. Hunley, which had just completed the world's first successful submarine attack, never returned as planned. In fact, the sighting reported by Robert Fleming was the last confirmed eyewitness account of the sub for the next 131 years. Yet to this day, questions as to its fate are still left unanswered. We'll explore some of the theories and more after the break. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. In the immediate aftermath of the Housatonic attack, the fate of the Hunley and her crew was unclear. The blue light signal indicated that they were returning, but the submarine never arrived. Some of the awaiting Confederate soldiers thought that perhaps Dixon may have taken it underwater following the signal, but Dixon never left any documentation outlining such a plan. On February 19, 1864, a report was made to General Beauregard by Lieutenant Colonel O.M. Danzler. It said, I have the honor to report that the torpedo boats stationed at this point went out on the night of the 17th instant and has not returned. The signals agreed upon to be given in case the boat wished light to be exposed at this post as a guide for its return were observed and answered. An earlier report would have been made of this matter the officer of the day for yesterday was under the impression that the boat had returned and so informed me. Some believe that the Hunley returned to land at a different, unplanned location and it was merely taking time for them to send word. Others, more familiar with the sub's history, had other ideas. Confederate General R.S. Ripley wrote to Beauregard, quote, Unless she had gone to Charleston, the boat has probably been lost or captured. I fear that it is more likely that she's gone down, judging from past experience of the machine. It took almost a week for the Confederacy to figure out the extent of the mission's success. And when they did, they immediately used the Hunley to glorify this new, stealthy technology. Although, to maintain the propaganda, news of the missing sub and its crew was kept quiet, and on February 29th, the Charleston Daily Courier even reported that the Hunley had returned safely to port. But this propaganda did not sufficiently quell the stories of her disappearance. The first formal search for the remains of the sub occurred in November of 1864. The United States sent divers and a survey team out to the wreck of the Housatonic to determine if it could be raised and repaired, and it could not. In addition, the divers were also charged with locating the Confederate submarine in the hopes that the United States Navy could use its technology against the Confederacy. They dragged 500 yards around the wreck more than a quarter of a mile of seabed. But in the end, the Hunley was nowhere to be found. Soon enough, stories of the missing submarine 
turned to legend. In the 1870s, the first claims of underwater sightings were made, and one story began making the rounds, claiming that the ship had been raised and a crew of nine skeletons were found inside, one of which was still clutching the wheel. These tales were so frequent and often far-fetched that officials with the U.S. Navy felt compelled to tell people not to believe them. Reportedly, even the infamous P.T. Barnum got in on the excitement and at one point offered $100,000 to anyone who could salvage the Hunley for its traveling circus. By now, the fate of the H.L. Hunley was clear. Following her attack on the Housatonic, the submersible sank, taking its eight-man crew with it. Yet why it sank and where remained a mystery for over a century. In 1970, E. Lee Spence, an underwater archaeologist, and the president of the Sea Research Society located the infamous wreck, and by December 29, 1978, the location of the H.L. Hunley was included on the National Register of Historic Places. Spence later included the site in his 1995 book, Treasures of the Confederate Coast, and he used an X to mark the ship's location. Then, in April of 1995, a dive team largely funded by novelist Clive Cussler announced the finding of the Hunley as a completely new discovery. But when they finally made the location public, they claimed it rested in about 18 feet of water, over a mile inshore from where the Housatonic sank. This was not the same location that Spence identified as the Hunley's resting place. However, it was later admitted that the location supplied by the 1995 dive team, was false. And the Hunley actually sat in 27 feet of water, just 100 yards away on the seaward side of the Housatonic. This location matched Spence's from 1970. A lawsuit commenced and despite repeated claims by some that the ship was newly discovered in 1995, it wasn't until Dr. Mark Newell stepped up that the truth came out. Dr. Newell, who organized the 1995 dive team, stated firmly that the expedition was actually part of a larger program of the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and that it was he who oversaw it, and not Clive Cussler, as many people believed. He then made it very clear that he did in fact use the maps of Ely Spence to direct the dive thus crediting Spence as the man who cracked the mystery. Once the location of the Hunley was determined, there was finally the opportunity to explore what actually happened on the night in February of 1864. First, an on-site underwater investigation was carried out. The vessel was both concealed and protected by several feet of silt, so formal identification of it wasn't made until the forward hatch and the ventilator box were exposed. 
The sub was resting on its starboard side at about a 45 degree angle and covered in a quarter to three quarter inches of rust bonded with sand and seashell particles. Measuring at approximately 37 feet in length, the investigation concluded that after all these years, the submersible remained intact. Then, on August 8, 2000, the infamous Confederate submarine broke the surface for the first time in 136 years. It was then secured within a specially designed freshwater tank at the Warren Lash Conservation Center to ensure the rusty old relic was stable enough to be exposed to air. Research completed in 2013 announced evidence of a copper sleeve at the end of the Hunley spar, indicating that the torpedo was likely attached directly to the spar. If this was so, then it's possible that the ship may have been less than 16 feet away from the Housatonic at the time of the explosion. And when the Hunley was finally opened and the silt inside removed, a shocking discovery was made. The skeletons of the eight crewmen were found to still be seated at their stations as if they died instantaneously. No signs of struggle and no evidence of skeletal trauma. The bilge pumps had not been used to remove water. The crew had not attempted to escape from the hatches and the weights along the keel had not been dropped. As biomedical engineer and author, Rachel Lance wrote in her book, in the waves, quote, it looked as if all eight men simply sat back, relaxed, and died. Clearly, the century-old mystery of where the H.L. Hunley had gone had given way to a new one. The question as to its demise. Some theorize that the crew of the Housatonic sank the boat with a lucky shot, others that it was damaged during the explosion, but the most common theory was that the men were victims of asphyxiation, a belief that the crew may have been knocked unconscious by the blast before succumbing to a lack of oxygen. After a decade of research, though, the majority of evidence points to the fact that the crew most likely died instantaneously at the moment that the spar torpedo made contact with the Housatonic. The men were victims of its percussive shockwave, which originated a mere 16 feet from the hull of their ship. This means the crew was likely already dead by the time the Hunley began to take on water or sink. Yet even this theory, which is supported by scientific research, is at odds with reported events of that fateful night, as survivors of the Housatonic claimed to see the submarine on the surface at least an hour after the explosion. And there was also that blue light, seen by both the United States sailors and Confederates alike. So if death came suddenly for the crew, who or what was responsible for this illumination, there are some answers we may simply never know.
today, the H.L. Hunley is on display at the Warren Lash Conservation Center in North Charleston, South Carolina. And while the truth about what happened may never come to light, there's one mystery that was solved by its return to shore. Who the men of the final crew actually were. History knew the name of George Dixon, who commanded the vessel, but the identities of the rest of the men were largely unknown, save for the fact that they all volunteered to serve aboard the sub. After the Hunley was finally discovered, the remains were examined, and it was determined that of the unknown seven men, four were American-born and the other three European. And by 2004, their identities were finally determined through DNA testing and extensive research. The final crew of the H.L. Hunley was Lieutenant George E. Dixon of Alabama or Ohio, Frank Collins of Virginia, Joseph F. Ridgway of Maryland, James A. Wick of North Carolina, Arnold Becker of Germany, Corporal Johann Frederick Carlson of Denmark, C. Lumpkin, likely of the British Isles, and Augustus Millery, likely of the German artillery. On April 17, 2004, the eight men were finally laid to rest at Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston, South Carolina. It's estimated that tens of thousands attended the procession, including color guards from all five branches of the United States Armed Forces. The men were all buried with full Confederate honors. And as for the H.L. Hunley, her success did little to impact the outcome of the Civil War, but the vessel will forever be remembered as the first combat submarine to ever sink a warship. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. This month, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters, Jez Cubetta, Donna Morgan, Nixie, Paul Gibson, Avery Hollow, Jill Reeves, and Natalia Stelflug. If you're interested in joining them and receiving additional content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Little Shacks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.